Good day, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to module one of the experiential depth approach to the Enneagram. Embody the virtues, live the essence, and ground higher realizations in your daily life with Russ Hudson and Jessica Dibb. This is your host, Lauren, here at the Shift Network, and today's module is titled, Opening to Your True Potential. So really excited to get started, but before we get going and bring on Jessica and Russ, there are a few technical reminders and orientation details I'd like to share with you to bring ease to your online course experience. First, you should have received a course orientation email the day you registered. This email contains a link for you to confirm your email address to ensure you receive all course-related emails. The orientation email and future course emails will have a link to your course homepage, and this is where you can access the Zoom link for your class call. Your course homepage also holds uh, the class schedule, all of your uh, class recordings, handouts, and transcripts. So please bookmark your course homepage today so you have quick and easy access to all of your course materials. Do note that you will need to click on the title of each week's session. Uh, that is the golden open button next to the module name. And once you click that, it will drop down and there you will find your course recordings, your transcripts, and deepening practices for each week. Additional course materials and bonuses will be found in the supplemental section. And this is down near the bottom of your course homepage. So check that out today, get it bookmarked, as your course homepage will help guide you through this journey. So throughout the course, you'll receive two emails each week directly from the Shift Network. One email will arrive prior to the call, and this will contain details. And the second email will arrive the day after with information about your deepening practices for the week. Uh, so check that out. Later in the call today, you will have the opportunity to interact live with Russ and Jessica by using the raise hand button on your Zoom window. If you're using an iPad or mobile app, you'll just tap your screen and the raise hand button will appear. And once we move into q and I'll give some additional instructions. So if you do wish to interact live, we suggest using headphones or a headset and this minimizes background noise and allows and ensures the best quality sound and recording. So you may also submit a written question using the Q&A button on your screen. And please note, if you've dialed in by telephone, that the telephone option is listen only in Zoom webinar. If you wish to interact live, then please head over to your computer and join us online using the live video access button uh, near the top of your course homepage. If your session should freeze up on you today or if you happen to get disconnected, simply hover, hover over the lower right and click the leave meeting button. And that will appear in red text. iPad and mobile app users, just tap the screen and the leave meeting button will appear in the upper left. Once you've left the meeting, please quit all of the programs that may be running and then use the same Zoom link to reconnect with the session. If you're unable to rejoin by computer, you do have the option to join us by telephone. And please refer to your course homepage for telephone dial-in information and meeting ID in the upper right-hand corner. 
if you're new to Zoom, we do understand uh, this can be a lot of information. So if you have any technical questions at all, we ask that you reach out to our amazing customer support team by visiting our website at support.theshiftnetwork.com. Again, that's support.theshiftnetwork.com. So it's truly uh, a pleasure to have the opportunity to join you all again on a, this time on a deeper level of exploration of the Enneagram. So so excited to get going. And so I will welcome on Jessica and Russ. Thanks so much, everyone. Welcome, everyone from around the globe. This is the first class of our new course, the Experiential Depth Approach to the Enneagram. We have been discussing and dreaming and envisioning and creating and structuring this course for a number of months now. And we're both so excited to be bringing it to this learning community all over the globe. One of our great objectives here is to create an immersive community that is really practicing what it is to be in contact with depth orienting from depth, perceiving the world from depth, and acting from depth in our lives. And we know that every person is a unique emanation of that depth, and that if we can bring to each person, ourselves included, an awareness, a love, and a presence, that something can come forth from each one of us that is not only the relief of suffering in each one of us, and not only liberating us to express and give our truest gifts, but is creating the possibility of a kind of collective functioning, a collective creativity that is so needed for our time. So welcome. Yeah. Yes, welcome everyone. Um, lovely to be with you. I'm looking forward to the weeks ahead and the journeys that we'll have. and. Um, yeah, just by way of, of welcome and, and placing a little context around the welcome. Uh, yeah, this whole idea of depth is very interesting, isn't it? Everybody, I don't know that people generally go around thinking of themselves as shallow or saying that they are. I, I don't generally think people think that of themselves. And if they do, it's their inner critic giving them a hard time about something or other. But... I think it's good at the beginning to just lay out on the table that our attitudes around the concepts and the words that we're using ought to be relaxed and not assuming that we know what we mean by these words. Mm -hmm. Maybe by the time we're done with this course, we'll have a very different sense of what depth means. For example, people could be talking about the Enneagram or spiritual topics, and there could be no depth present. And people could be talking about the weather, but the quality of their attention and contact is such, there's tremendous depth. People can be lovers with no depth, and people can be strangers seeing each other across the street, mm -hmm. and it can be depth. So we want to be careful about our preconceptions I want to be careful about my preconceptions. And we want to invite you that first and foremost, this work we'll be doing and what the Enneagram is really about is a homecoming. 
Mm-hmm. It's about coming back to ourselves. And we will find the depth we're talking about there. But the Enneagram is not ever telling us what we are or who we are. It's not meant to be a final definition of what we are as human beings or as souls, as consciousness. It's meant to be a way of seeing what we get caught up in and then remembering there are ways to come home to ourselves. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the way that Jessica and I tend to work and we'll be probably working with you this uh, during these weeks is inviting you into that homecoming. And uh, we hope there are many such moments in the course. And then all the things we're learning about the personality patterns and the things people get caught up in are just supports for that remembering, mm. for that coming back. Mm. And then when we're here, when we are, are coming back and we're coming back with each other, all bets are off. That's when the magic can happen. Mm. Thank you. In fact, depth is not a place. It's not a particular situation or a state that we get to. Right. It's actually a quality of existence itself. And therefore, it's utterly dynamic. And so one of the first things to understand about depth is if we looked at it from, therefore, a mathematical perspective or a spatial perspective, that it's infinite. There's no end to it, and it's even one of the reasons we wanted to use this word because, in a sense, what we're saying is what happens for each one of us when we make contact with land in and live from an orientation, a moment in time, which hopefully can then be found anew in each moment, a moment in time where we're not fixated in any particular way, we're liberated from unconscious patterns. What happens when we're available to the entire spectrum of the expression of reality and what it is that some people might call the source or the divine or God? And so the invitation here is really an infinite dynamism of a way of being and an orientation, not a place that we're going to get to. What it feels like personally, well, I know that you know. I know. Russ knows. We have all had moments when, for whatever reason, grace, practice, happenstance, inspired by something, suddenly we are able to let go of everything that we have previously taken ourselves to be, everything that we've taken life to be, and we're just so here in what we might call now or reality or even the holy instant, we actually become surprised by the way that we're showing up. Like right now, if I am contacting depth, I might have had some sense of inner guidance, some sense of thought, mindfulness that I had put into what it was that we wanted to cover. But in the moment of being in depth, the words that arise are like, I am listening to to something that is coming through. We all know what that feels like. When we said that thing in relationship that we didn't know we were going to say or we took that action, that we didn't know we could even take, or we found parts of ourselves, aspects of ourselves that we didn't even know we had the capacity for. And that's a really exciting part about depth. 
is realizing that our capacity is so much more. So Russ and I have, through the years, really tried to inquire in so many ways about what it would take. You know, we're so inspired by so many teachers down from antiquity and into the present moment by teachers, by teachings, by people, you know, sharing about their breakthroughs, their insights. We're so inspired by all of that and yet have kept noticing that all of us are subject to our egoic fear, somehow co-opting the very things that we, we know are freedom and are real. And what we think is in our humble journey, you know, and trying to be humble about it is that the one who is trying to make something happen, even at the level of awakening or being free or a spiritual path, the one who is listening to the teaching and then trying to do something about it is not the one who can actually fix it. Because that one that we've taken ourselves to be is still limited, is still not that truly awakened self. So one of the th reasons we have found the Enneagram to be one of the most powerful tools we've ever come across is because by nature it's triadic. It's, it's set up triadically. So it goes beyond even, in a sense, it goes beyond non-duality because it goes to the place where non-duality is creatively emergent. And so what you have in the Enneagram are two things. One is that your pattern is interrupted by the fact that you as a body type or a heart type or a head type are existing in a center that has three types, not just your own. And with the law of three, with one of the aspects of the law of, of three things arising, one is affirming, one is denying, and one we call the reconciling or a kind of emergent force, if you're actually paying attention to all three qualities of the center that you are located in, then you absolutely cannot stay fixated. You're going to land up in an emergent, infinite uh, space. Secondly, then there are three centers. And so the same thing happens, that if you're working with all three centers, you cannot remain fixated in one of them as dominant or one of them as buried or shadowed or subordinate you're going to land up in a space that is beyond the map where there's a radical presence that is not something that you could have created from your fear-based self. So we have found this to be very powerful. It interrupts the pattern of locating ourselves as a particular thing or identifying ourselves as a particular thing. And then secondly, it helps us develop capacities or aspects of ourselves that we had been ignoring or that we had been cynical about from the perspective of our type. It shows us that we all have these nine capacities at least and none of them are dual, they're all triadic. So none of them can exist without the presence of all the others. And this not only interrupts our patterns, but it invites us to a greater sense of the capacity that we are, not again denying parts that we, for instance, many people will say things like, 
well, I'm the kind of person who does this, or I'm never the kind of person who does that. The Enneagram just completely dissolves all of that. You realize, no, that is not the truth. I am something that is not any of these things. And so that's what we mean by depth. It's a depth that is interrupting our sense of identity, location, fixation, and liberating ourselves to this infinitely dimensional, infinitely emergent space. And that's where we're inviting you and all of us and challenging ourselves to in this 17-week journey. Yeah. Well, the, um, the thing is, we don't know who's out there listening. We don't know who's in this call with us. I suspect there are people here who are in the healing arts. I suspect there are people who are uh, following traditional uh, spiritual paths of uh, Judaism or Christianity or Islam or maybe in one of the Eastern paths of Hinduism or Buddhism. There are people more broadly into spirituality or into indigenous traditions. There are people who are secular and humanistic and uh, maybe don't really subscribe to any of those traditional views. I think uh, what you need to know is Jessica and I both will use a lot of different language and metaphors from different traditions and from science and psychology and, mm -hmm. and religion and all kinds of things. Because in the end, we're looking at human experience. And nothing that we're saying will make a darn bit of difference if we are not inhabiting the things that we're talking about, mm -hmm. which is the big challenge with the Enneagram. The Enneagram is so interesting, right? You learn about it and you learn there's these nine types and it seems more accurate and, and understandable than some of these other systems that you might have learned. And by golly, it is so fun finding out what you are and figuring out what your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife or your kids and everybody you want. We want to know everybody. What are they? Uh, and, and it's very compelling. And it makes sense of challenges that we've had in our relationships and so forth. But what we're going to be doing in this course is springboarding off of that way of looking at it, right? If you have been looking for your type, that's good. Because in the process of trying to discern what you, how you usually behave, you begin to get a little distance from that. It begins to wake up a part of us that isn't just being that way of being, that, that pattern. So the core of the Enneagram and the traditional Enneagram and the part that uh, is where Jessica and I have done our work and what we hope to bring to you during this time is not so much looking at this from the point of view as, as you were just saying, Jess, is, is not that I am a nine, I am a one, I am a two. There is no doubt that people get dominated by these particular patterns, that there's a way I cope, I deal with my emotions, I overcome obstacles, I take care of myself and what I do in the world through these patterns. And anybody who can't see that just needs to take more time to really study because we do have a dominant pattern. So I'm not saying with a flick of the wrist that there's nothing to being a type. There's definitely a lot to being a type, but it is not where the story ends. It's where the story begins. Mm -hmm. 
And if we can start to discern what we've taken ourselves to be, the pattern that we get most identified with, the most caught up in, what I really walk around in the back of my mind thinking I am, the way I am, and how I try to survive, it starts to open up space that's been, you know, maybe locked up or unavailable for a very long time. And it gives me more capacity to be creative, to really love and relate to people, to do the good work I'm here in this world to do. And it also, it is the way to the direct experience of our spiritual yearnings. And unlike many of the other systems I've looked at, which are telling us what the final result is going to be like. Mm -hmm. You know, here's where you're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. uh, Enneagram doesn't really do that. We're more looking at what we get stuck in. And if I were to use religious language, I'd say, and we let God do the rest. There's a way that we, in the seeing of our patterns from the right place in ourselves, that a creative space opens up in our consciousness where we can sing a new song, where something new can be expressed through us, where we actually develop and evolve uh, as, as human beings and hopefully as, as societies and as a species. Hmm. But that's what we're going to be looking at. Um, and the traditional Enneagram, the real background material behind this goes back quite a ways, and it's clearly coming out of, out of that perspective. Did, were you going to say something, Jess? No, just that I'm I'm loving what you're saying, and I think that there is this thing that you were talking about that most past describe where you should be, even that one should be unconditionally loving, which is something I tend to really like. It's it's still like who's the one that's listening to that? Mm -hmm. Who's the one that's like feeling inspired by that? Mm -hmm. Who's the one that's thinking, okay, well, now I'll do something about that. And what Russ and I started to notice, and this is, you know, this can be really scary. And this is why we want to do this work together with all of you. Mm -hmm. What we started to notice is, wait a minute, that one who's doing that, that's not it. We actually have to find a way to disrupt our sense of, of that, who that person is, and something else has to enter. So that's the place of depth that we're going to be inviting us to, and I and I love that you were naming that. Mm -hmm. Well, the way I've, I've try, I try to find ways to talk about these that are not too encrusted with jargon, so that we can think about them freshly. Um, I talk a lot with my students these days about that that our development requires two kinds of growth or two kinds of learning, you might say. One is horizontal development, horizontal learning. That's learning skills. And you learn, if you're learning massage, for example, you're learning a skill, that's a horizontal development. If you're learning the Enneagram and you're learning how the system works and the inner lines and the and what are wings and there, are there tri-types and all that stuff that we people talk about in the Enneagram world, that's horizontal learning. It's acquiring a skill. If you're learning yoga, you're learning a skill. If you're learning new job skills or a computer program, all this horizontal. And we human beings don't get too far without some horizontal development and learning. Some spiritual traditions overemphasize the other kind of learning so much that there isn't much of the horizontal development. Now, the other kind is vertical 
development, vertical learning. Vertical learning or development is the reframe of the sense of the one who is experiencing, doing, learning, whatever. It's a discovery of I on a deeper level, thus our word depth, that what I was taking to be myself is revealed to be not quite it. It doesn't take a lot to see that. You know, anytime we just stop and take a breath, we feel our body here, sense ourselves sitting where we're sitting or standing where we're standing, feeling our hands, our feet. Just give that even a little moment. There is a shift in the sense of the eye that is experiencing. What we were even a moment before is not that it wasn't true. It's just not as true as what's here now. So there's a development. So spirituality tends to focus on vertical development. The mystical side of spirituality is, is the search for the true nature of the self and the true nature of the divine. And the rumors are that if you go far enough, those two things kind of co-mingle co-emerge, communion, that beautiful word from Christianity. Um, and in the process of that vertical development, we need horizontal skills. We need to learn how to meditate. We need to learn how to practice. We need to learn a lot of new stuff. If we're working with the Enneagram, definitely there's stuff we need to learn. But if you learn those horizontal things well, it helps with the vertical development. And the vertical development, when we keep our eyes on that ball, mm -hmm. when we're aware of those shifts of the nature of the one who's having this experience, the one who is learning, right? Mm -hmm. That makes it easier to learn. Because we'll find as we go deeper, there's more relaxation, there's more truth, there's more focus. And all the good stuff that we talk about the Enneagram becomes more naturally accessible as we sort of disengage from what we're usually scrunched into. It's hard to see at first how much our usual identity is a scrunch. It's a scrunch physically, it's a scrunch emotionally, ah, and it's a scrunch mentally, our minds go when any part of that quiets down, what we start to relax and open into is very different from that. And then we will tend to dismiss it as some kind of weird experience, even though nice, rather than taking in the implication, hey, when that experience occurred, I felt more like myself than I usually do. I felt closer to home, felt closer to the truth of what this life is about. So the Enneagram, as we'll see, is not, again, telling us who we are. It's a way of seeing what we want to pay attention to that will expedite and make easier the process of that vertical and horizontal synthesis. You know, Russ, I love what you're saying, and I, that is really the invitation here. We are going to do our best ourselves to practice in such a way and invite you in three centered practices that interrupt your fixation in any center to experience this presence of depth, just this moment that it has to happen each moment. It has to be cultivated. What is happening if I let go enough to not take myself as I was the moment before? Mm -hmm. That's the doorway to depth and it's the doorway to the vertical. And if I can string together moments of that, 
and allow that depth to contact and impact everything about me that is the horizontal. So this is a path about radical presence with. It's not about transcendence. The transcendence already is. That's the way life is just filled with transcendence. God, if you will, is transcendent. We don't have to create that. And our ego wanting to transcend something is actually just going to get us into trouble. We're talking about a radical meeting where we allow or we open to or we let go enough so the vertical comes in and we bring to it our pain, the, the sores and the wounds and the confu- of our heart, the confusions and the delusions of our mind. We do not reject anything. And we allow the vertical to work with these things. And that's the depth approach to the heart the belly and the head. And so we wanted to talk just a little bit right now about what are the the passions, what are the mm-hmm. instincts, what are the virtues and the holy ideas from the perspective of death. Yeah. Well, as you were just saying so elegantly, um, this is not a, a way of transcending. It, here we're really going with the old uh, adage, the way out is through. And we are called to hold ourselves through our confusion, through our suffering, with help from these deeper qualities, which are attributed to spirit, to grace. Um, They're talked about differently in different traditions, but the experience of it is is fairly universal. Um, The Enneagram um, is many things. There are the elements of the metaphysic of it, which come from, which were brought into the modern world by uh, Mr. George Gurdjieff, and that's how I learned it originally, was was through um, his work and through some people who worked with him. Um, that's one element, but the modern Enneagram has, was created by a man named Oscar Ichazo, who was looking at Gurdjieff's metaphysic and applying it to other systems and particularly of Western spirituality. He was looking at the Kabbalah and he was looking at certain Christian mystical practices and some elements of, of a Sufism and, and many other things. There were Eastern elements to his work too, to be sure. But the part that is most germane to our search begins with uh, the idea of the passions the nine passions, and some of you have studied with me before or with Jessica, or some of you are, are new, but I think we all need to just remember that the passions are the core. Um, the passions were the part of the Enneagram work that all of the type descriptions were developed from. The Basically, uh, since you know, roughly 1970, um, a number of people, starting with Claudio Nerano and um, and uh, my former uh, uh, writing partner who passed away, Don Richard Riso and Helen Palmer and many other teachers, have worked to try to tease out the psychology that derives from the passion. But what is the passion? Mm-hmm. The passions are often misunderstood as sort of like a bad habit. Um, and probably because when we first encounter them, they seem that way. They just seem like an annoying thing that I do. 
but the passions actually come from Christian mysticism. They come from the Desert Fathers and the Desert Mothers, I might well add, uh, who were the first monks and nuns in the world. And they lived in Egypt in the first few centuries of the Christian era, going back to about mm, the year like 200, up through the year five or 600, was the beginning of these teachings. And, uh, but they were not looking at types of people exactly. They were studying what created vexation in their practice, what distracted the sincere seeker of God from that seeking, what made us jettison our prayer or our meditation and get caught up in something else. And they studied that, and a man named Evagrius, Evagrius Ponticus, Evagrius of Pontus, who was living amongst them, wrote these down. Uh, eight of them originally, and then a, a ninth was clarified over the next hundred years or so. Uh, but the, the passions you may recognize also as some of the seven deadly sins, although the Enneagram is nine. You have um, lust, uh, sloth or acidia. You have anger or wrath. You have pride, you have vanity or vainglory, you have envy, you have avarice, you have gluttony, and the, the ninth that was not originally named, uh, but later, as I said, clarified by other early mystics and theologians, was called doubt, faithlessness, or incontinence. And if you think about what happens when you have incontinence, you get the idea it's, it's making a mess of yourself over and over again, not containing something. So these were not, again, a type of person, although they may well have observed that, some, that each person had a tendency. But when you look deeper at the passions, you have to remember that the word passion comes from passio, which is to suffer. Like this, the passion of Christ is not that he was an emotional dude. It was the, the, about the suffering and crucifixion. So these are the core sufferings. So each passion is not a bad habit. It's the deepest hurt in the heart mm -hmm. that we're forever trying to heal, fix. And a lot of our personality motivations are running around doing the best thing we know to do to try to address that suffering, try to fix it if we can, at the very least numb it or soothe it so that we can just get on with life and do the things we need to do. We can't walk around like a chest full of raw hamburger. We, we needed to learn some way. And when we were little kids, we didn't really have the skills or the neurological development or the maturity to handle this. So it was normal that we would develop strategies. Now, a big part of the strategy that we have to deal with the passion is the fixation. The fixation is not in a heart thing. Passion is heart. Fixation is mental. It's a mental operation. It's a, a habitual way of looking at the world and oneself, a way of orienting to the world that we take to be reality. It's a very limited view that we're stuck in. And so it's a compulsive mental activity that drives a lot of behavior. The purpose of the fixation is to keep us from the full brunt of the suffering of our passion. 
So we're doing something and we're thinking a certain way so as not to walk around being overwhelmed by the suffering that we're in. And of course, there's the suffering of other people too. All of that makes sense and we can't get upset or angry about it. It's amazing that our nature is such that we contrive defense mechanisms and psychological patterns and object relations and all kinds of stuff. And that's there for all of you psychotherapists, all of that in service of us just being able to get on with life the best that we can and waiting for a time where we could lay our burden down and finally address this deep, empty, hurting heart. So the Enneagram is saying, Unlike some forms of spirituality, we're not going to jump over that. We're not going to try to just go to the light. Because in doing that, in a sense, we're abandoning ourselves. And it leads often to very dissociative and schizoid structures. For those of you who know psychology, ways we leave ourselves, split off from our feelings, get very alienated. And, you know, we might like those states because in them we're, we seem to be suffering less. But if we were to look more closer, numbness is very different than a person who has worked through these difficulties and has come to a kind of radical aliveness. It has the beautiful qualities of expansion and so forth, but it's like that person becomes truly human. And this leads us to the next concept that we work with, which is the virtues. The virtues are not already hanging around. Mm -hmm. The virtues are what grows in the heart. It's the garden that is cultivated in the heart of the person working through their passion. And there is, that's how they are come upon. By working with human suffering, by learning to be present with it, by bringing the finer qualities of attention and compassion and grace to bear on this very difficult, challenging human journey that we're all on together, to just bring that compassion to ourselves and to stay with it starts an alchemical reaction and it starts to transmute the suffering of the passion into a virtue. And these virtues are not transcendental, I'm there and you're not. They are very specific, they are very human and humane. And in the great Western traditions, they are the signs of a person who is closer to God, someone who has done the work, someone who is not faking it until they make it, but actually gone through these processes and paid their spiritual dues, if you will. People did not in the ancient world go around proclaiming that they were enlightened. People were not charging money to go around and have you know quick workshops to tell people that they were one. The real saints and masters, both Eastern and Western, were profoundly humble, human, authentic. They did not see themselves as more enlightened than anyone else because they're actually in a state of realization that doesn't even make any sense. Only the ego could think such a thing. So, you know, it's not like these people, we become ultimately more human if the real work is processing. Mr. Kajif used to say the aim of the work was to become a human being without quotation marks. And I, I've always thought that was a pretty good goal to have. If we could be human in the way we know in our heart of hearts is possible, to be truly human would be an extraordinary feat. And then 
the higher and deeper powers that be can work with us as needed. That's mm -hmm. the other idea. So the last concept that we work with here, uh, well, there are two, but um, following this line of, of reason is the holy ideas. Holy ideas take a lot of time to understand, but they are the way the word world, the word appears too, but the world, the way the world appears when we have softened and dissolved our fixated view. So they are non-dual, but they are not dissociative non-dual. Mm -hmm. Because the non-dual includes the ego consciousness. How, if it didn't, there would be two, and then it would be dual. I meet a lot of people who think they're doing non-duality and they're thinking they're in the non-dual and everybody else is in the dual. And as far as I can tell, that's two things. So it's not non-duality. The non-dual includes the dual within it, which is one of the great messages, as Jessica said earlier, in the Enneagram. That's the meaning of the law of three. It's, it's the variegated and endless different expressions of the unity, but there's also with it the ability to discern the different flavors of reality that that unitive consciousness is producing and that you don't have to pick, you're both all the time. Um, so that's, the holy ideas talk about how we walk through the earth with our true mind awakened. What is, what's reality look like from the awakened mind? And again, this is not something exactly there at the beginning. It's more what happens as the mind is liberated from its fixated views by our presence practices and our inner work. So the only other thing to mention here uh, that we'll be working with, uh, not as extensively, but we'll be giving reference to it is the so-called subtypes or instincts, which I think is a more accurate term. Um, the instincts are the different intelligences of life and nature in us. They are um, all, they're actually centers. That's something that doesn't always get said. The uh, people ask, why are there seven chakras and only three Enneagram centers? Because, well, there are actually seven Enneagram centers. The first three are the instincts, the self-preservation instinct the sexual instinct and the social instinct. And then you have the heart and the head and then the two higher centers, which is where the virtues and the holy ideas come into play. So there are actually seven centers in the deeper Enneagram work that go with the idea of the seven chakras. There are some differences in the system to be sure, but there is a correspondence in both systems that we have these seven foci of consciousness within our physical form where we plug into different elements of consciousness beyond our individual consciousness, you could say. The Enneagram work, as I understand it, is that we first find the centers because the dirty little secret is when we're in our personality, we're not really in any center. People going around learning the Enneagram, oh, I'm a heart type, I'm a heart type. But when you're saying that, you're actually not connected with your heart, probably. There's a journey to finding our true heart, our true mind, to find out what real embodiment is, to actually be awake to the energy of our instincts rather than just trying to figure mentally out which one of them I am. And, of course, the, the answer there is you're none of them and all of them. You know, so there's a way that, recognizing these patterns is crucial 
and very helpful for our development, but it isn't our identity. So we want to tread around that lightly. And the work with the instincts and occupying the instincts, occupying the heart, occupying the head, then leads to the beginning of the possibility of these centers becoming balanced, harmonized, and ultimately unified. Uh, but that's a big and lifelong process. But anyway, that's a quick take on the traditional uh, terms from the Enneagram uh, in terms of the, the type work. So what Russ has been describing is the way and the orientation that we're going to do the work. It's to be present to these different aspects of ourselves, our instinctual nature, our hearts, the pain that is in our hearts, the capacity of our hearts, our mind or our head and how it's being used by our fear, how it's being shaped by our anxiety, and then what happens when we bring presence to it. What is going to happen when we contact depth in each of these centers? Some people, of course, and we do too, say that as those transmutations are happening, as presence itself is working on those different aspects of ourselves, um, what opens up is direct contact with source. And some people call that essence, right? They'll mm -hmm. say that there are these qualities of reality. Yeah. These spirit. Right, qualities yeah. of spirit, of the divine, qualities of reality itself, really even physical reality that we don't have to fabricate, that are already here. And it's not just the sort of thing of letting go, letting go, letting go. See, I think that is one direction of movement that we need to do. But this is more about the examination of all of the patterns that we have cognitively, emotionally, and physically to cope with our pain the patterns that we have to distract us from our fears. Mm -hmm. It's about bringing radical presence to those things. And then it's possible that what will, will open genuinely, not open from a conditional place, but open genuinely to these qualities and expressions of creative life force itself, which we might call essence. So what we wanted to do now, oh, and I also want to say, one thing that we're really excited about is this particular format of 17 weeks is the most comprehensive course on the shift network that we've ever taught about the Enneagram. Usually we kind of focus in on a particular theme. This is more about focusing in on an orientation, a way of being, of actual awakening in a very comprehensive way. So there's the instincts, the heart, the virtues, the head, the, the holy ideas, essence. And then there's two classes on relational field and relationships. And there's two classes on the divine and the ways that we have actually avoided certain aspects of what we might call God or the divine because of our fear, because of our pain, and opening up to those capacities. And then there's opening up to all the gifts inside of ourselves in terms of social participation and how we bring that to everyday life. So we're, we are very excited about the comprehensive nature of the course. And what we'd like to do with you right now is to do our first practice about actually contacting depth or at least interrupting our patterns enough that we have a little bit more of a taste of depth. 
so that we can begin to get a, an experiential flavor of what it's going to feel like to be allowing our bodies and hearts and minds to be worked on by presence itself. So we invite you now, if you would, to bring yourself into a state or a place of wakefulness and awareness where you're able to pay attention to what we might call the interior self. And you're also aware that you are in contact with everything else. Not only my voice and Russ's voice, but the air around you and the world and even infinity itself. So if it helps you to close your eyes to do that, then please do. And if it might help you to keep your eyes open right now, please do that. Or if it might help you to keep your gaze kind of softly focused somewhere, then do that. Just check it out. And let's begin to contact depth rather than our idea of what depth is or rather than our idea of getting to any of these terms that Russ and I have been using, like presence or love. And here's how we're going to do it. In this moment, inhabit your breath, meaning where your breath meets your attention as it's coming in through your nose or your mouth and moving down. Land in the sensation of your breath. So we're not wanting right now to use our breath to get somewhere. We're not wanting to use our breath to relax. See, these are all the kinds of activities, the kinds of ideas that our fixated self has about we're going to get to a particular goal that we're going to really need to let go of. Trust the actual sensation of your breath, meaning... There's the direct sensation of your breath moving in through your nose, your mouth, your throat, into your lungs. Then there's the sensation of your lungs moving your rib cage and your belly. So now you can feel the sensation of your ribs and belly. Then there's even the sensation of being aware of how breathing is animating your whole body and your whole body has sensations. And as you inhabit those sensations, I want you to consider a possibility. Those sensations are bigger than the you you've been taking yourself to be. They are a seamless flow of energy and reality that is physical. And it's in your body, it's in your breath, and it's everywhere. It's somatic intelligence. So what if right now you and I were to inhabit the sensations of your breath or the sensations your breath produces or creates and we were to tr trust the knowing, the intelligence of those sensations of reality? See if you can let go into that just a little bit over the next five or 10 breaths. Dropping out of goal, dropping out of intention, dropping out of result, 
just sensation itself as intelligent. Just allowing whatever arises in your body to arise, whatever flows through your heart to flow through, and noticing how you're changing each moment somehow. Just by relaxing into somatic intelligence, sensation. Now allowing that to be Let's bring our attention to the center of your heart, the center of your chest, and breathing in a willingness. When you breathe out, just simply soften the center of your chest. Physically, let it get softer. Each breath, each exhalation, softer and softer more available to this moment, more intimate with the each moment, more receptive to how you are actually being affected by this moment. And we'll take a few breaths that way. And let's trust a little bit more emotional intelligence, how our hearts are affected by this moment, and now this moment, and now this moment. That this is bigger than who we've taken ourselves to be. That it would be a lifetime of exploration, just the sensation itself, and now just the being affected, the emotion, the, the feeling of life would be a whole lifetime of exploration of intelligence. Now, noticing how the increased sensation, the increased allowing of receptivity in your heart to each moment has invited you to something bigger than you usually take yourself to be. Consider that it would be an intelligent thing to want to partner with that and make a decision to deepen your breath now. Allow your attention, your head to consider and receive the learning of each breath. Notice that your brain, your head is being animated by the breath, energized, awakened, stimulated, all of those capacities. Now deepen your breath and be willing to listen or to receive what you are learning through each 
conscious breath. Okay, now again, notice the sensations of your breath and the sensations of reality. Inhabit them. Notice the softening of your heart with each exhalation and how that makes you more receptive, more affected, more in contact, more intimate with each moment. And notice the capacity to choose to direct your awareness to learn, to receive, to listen. And now practice all three of those together by noticing the energy that the air is, the energy that your body is, and that when you're breathing in, it's like energy coming into energy. And moving through all three of those intelligences, somatic, emotional, cognitive. And now for just a couple of minutes, we're going to take that awareness, that breath awareness, and we're going to breathe even deeper breaths. So I really want you to pull it in and then let it go with the sense that you're bringing this quality of all three intelligences plus the energy itself or spirit as Russ was saying to your human life. Like you are breathing right now into your experience of now. Your experience of your home or your place where you are, your experience of the people that you're connected with, your experience of your vocation, that you're breathing consciously and deeply, all of these awarenesses into contact with your human life. So let's just take a minute and take really deep breaths with that. We're not trying to solve anything. We're not trying to fix anything. We don't have a goal to be more relaxed, to be more present, all of that gone. It's just the actual sensation, affect, and awareness of breath meeting your humanity, meeting your life as it is. Now, what begins to happen? Who is this one that we were taking ourselves to be and what is actually happening now? When we're not taking ourselves or we're taking ourselves less to be what we thought we were. That's what we are calling depth. That's the opening to depth. Something else is here. 
It's not something we can even conceive of. It's not something that we can make ourselves be. It's something that we can interrupt our patterns of distraction and soothing and coping so that we allow it or we partner with it to be in each moment. So we want to ask you a question now. And this is something that we'll be doing throughout the course. Many of you know the time-honored practice of a repeating question, but some of you may be new to it. So Russ and I are going to ask you a question about every 20 seconds. It's going to be the same question 10 or 20 times. And each time we ask it, we'd like you to answer it in a phrase or a sentence, either in your head, or if you like, you can actually write it down, which would be very powerful. And the whole time that you're listening and responding each time we ask the question, respond from this practice. Keep practicing, and then just whatever comes up each time we ask it, that's your answer. We'll ask it again, and it will be an entirely different answer because each moment is new. So here's the question. It's going to be, tell me a way that you are experiencing depth right now. So breathing into sensation, breathing into the softening of your chest so it's more intimate and receptive to reality, breathing into your head so that you are more aware and awake to what is happening, more receptive there, feeling the energy of breath moving through all three of those centers, and your willingness to bring it in contact with this moment and every moment of your life. Let's answer this question. Tell me a way that you are experiencing depth right now. Tell me a way you are experiencing depth right now. Tell me a way you are experiencing depth right now. Tell me a way you are experiencing depth right now. Tell me a way you are experiencing depth right now.
tell me a way you are experiencing depth right now. Tell me a way you are experiencing depth right now. Tell me a way you are experiencing depth right now. Tell me a way you are experiencing depth right now. Tell me a way you are experiencing depth right now. Tell me a way you are experiencing death right now. Tell me a way you are experiencing depth right now. So we're going to invite you to notice right now what's different about this moment. And if we keep practicing what's sort of different about each moment, because again, this is about the contacting of a dynamism, an equality of reality that we're calling depth. We might also say it's sort of the, the original or the, the primordial substance. It's, it's, it has no location again. It is infinite spatially and time-wise. So it's infinitely dynamic. And so all we can do is sort of be it in each moment, one moment at a time. And our hope is that together over these 17 weeks, we're going to find so many different ways of contacting this depth by both allowing the differentiations of all the different triads and types and the virtues and the holy ideas and the instincts and looking at that in relationship and part social participation that we and interrupting our patterns that keep us from allowing those differentiations that this quality of dynamic depth infinite opening will start to build 
not only our interior lives, but our exterior lives in a whole new way. So my offering would be to you that for a deepening practice for this particular week, the most important thing is to pause and practice exactly as we just practiced with all three centers plus the sense of energy into energy and then the willingness to bring that into contact with your life exactly as it is in that moment. You're at work. You're having a wonderful conversation with somebody. You're having a really painful conversation with someone. You're looking at the beautiful sunny sky. You're feeling the chill of the rain. You're hungry. You're satiated. Like pausing as many times as you possibly can to do this practice so that something different than what you were just taking yourself to be comes in contact with that moment. And we can allow ourselves to start being built from a place of depth. I'd invite you to do a simple practice over the next week. Um, that when you wake up in the morning, um, usually, you know, there might be, you know, some false starts. Some of us wake up right away full on and some of us kind of make some decisions. But when you have said, okay, I'm awake now, it's a crucial moment. When you wake up, before you get up and grab your, your phone or, you know, anything else, just take a moment, sit up on your bed, on the edge of your bed, with your feet on the floor, and just for a few moments before you rush into your day and all those patterns get a full grip, just take a little pause so that I bring me with me into the bathroom for my brushing my teeth and having my breakfast and so forth. But just to take a few moments when I first wake up to be aware of my breath as we just did and to sense my feet on the floor. Just breath and sensation of the feet, keeping it real simple, just as a pause to the momentum before that pattern completely gets going. And then of course, if you have a little space from that, then you're gonna have a lot easier time doing the practice Jessica was just recommending. Okay. You have some, something to work with. So thank you. So Russ, tell me a way that you are experiencing depth right now. As the holding of uh, certain tensions that are slowly letting go in my shoulders and my neck. It's like a presence that's holding those tight places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like that. Okay. So, Jessica, tell me why you are experiencing depth right now. I'm experiencing it as a potential that is extremely visceral. It's like an energy right under the surface of my skin. Mm. And it seems to have capacity and effervescence. Thank you. You're welcome. So beautiful friends, we will join with you next week to start to actually talk about inner work 
and the practices and what happens during inner work? What is actually going to happen during these processes of bringing presence to all of these aspects of ourself? So blessings until then. Thank you. So wonderful. Welcome, Jessica. Welcome, Russ. Hi. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so we've got Leslie here uh, with her hand up, and I'll bring you on over, Leslie. Here we go. Give her just a second to join us. Go ahead, Leslie. Can you define dualism for me, please? Dualism is a very natural thing that our human minds do. Uh, dualism is whenever we make any distinction between things. So, you know, mostly we define the world and we describe it in terms of differentiations. So, you know, light and dark, up and down, uh, right and wrong, male and female, anything that can be differentiated, you have like two. But I think the idea of non-dualism, which often gets confused in many people's mind, is the notion that things can be differentiated but aren't necessarily separate. Like uh, in certain moments of intimacy, we might be able to differentiate ourselves from the person we're being intimate with, but we can feel that we're actually part of the same field or substance. Uh, but more generally, uh, we're educated and, uh, to think dualistically, to make distinctions, to say this versus this, this or this, this but this. And um, it's just a, a normal feature of the human psyche, as I said, and of, of certainly um, of ego uh, reality. It isn't wrong. It's just not the only way to see things. That's, that's what I'd say about it. You got anything to add to that? Well, I think the application or the implication of it is that we tend to identify ourselves with something and not something else. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of both our capacity to relate to the world, to others, to ourselves from a place of harmony, of connectedness, that becomes a problem because we're identifying ourselves as a fixed thing rather than part of the dynamism of the world. And this is how relationships, for instance, can get into trouble. And people say things like, well, I'm the kind of person who is this way, or I don't do this. And, and then there becomes this kind of stance and fixation. A non-dualistic perspective at a spiritual level is a very awakened realization about how everything, you know, is part of a unified field and all of the things that can bring. But even at a very human relationship relatedness even you know cooperative or ventures that we would do together politics all of that there's a real fundamental invitation about being able to be present from a non-dual state that we could begin to notice new pathways that aren't just about let's do it this way or this way but that there would be a kind of collective intelligence that might Come that would be some answer that would not have otherwise been possible. So for any human being to start to experience the fundamental unity of even what seems contrasting ideas or opinions or viewpoints or stances or fragrances even 
is to open up to a kind of creativity, shall we say. I think that is very applicable and needed in our times. Does that help, Leslie? That's perfect. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Great. Thank you so much, Leslie. And uh, let's see here. Um, we've got um, a question coming in here from, uh, there's no name. Uh, it says, how is depth different from awareness? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, <laughs> I don't, I use depth in a very particular way in my general teaching and somewhat differently from how we're talking about it in this course. Mm -hmm. uh, depth, as we're talking about in this course, is dropping away from our usual perspectives and our usual point of view. Now, when we do that, we notice a whole bunch of things. Uh, and they're connected, as we we're just saying, it's kind of moves toward non-dual experience, but they can be, they can be discriminated. They can be uh, differentiated. For example, I can be aware of the feeling of depth. The awareness is the perception. Awareness for me is perception fundamentally. Uh, awareness can be more or less conscious. When it's more conscious, then it's consciousness. But awareness is, is, is pure perception. But I think the depth is one way or one of the characteristics by which we might experience what awareness feels like. Like awareness is, doesn't feel shallow. It feels like something deeper in us. So, you know, you could see how these concepts are pointers toward a certain zone, shall we say, of human experience. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we can, we can mark off different elements of them, but they're kind of different faces of the same thing, you could say. Yeah, I really like what Russ said about just reiterating that this perspective here is how it is that we can disengage or relinquish and relax out of our usual contractions and be in that space of taking ourselves or opening to ourselves in a way other than we usually take ourselves to be, that that immediately opens up possibilities that are limitless, really. And within that field, we can notice all of these aspects of capacity and being like awareness, like love, like um, discrimination, like uh, joy, um, and that we were not able to notice before except through a, a more contracted lens that is based usually in a kind of fear and defensiveness. Great, thank you so much. So we've got uh, Jaya here, and uh, Jaya, if you're ready, I'll give you the mic here. Are you ready? Um, it's Jaya. Jaya, uh, thank you. Uh, I got so fascinated when you started to correlate some things with the seven chakras, but I kind of lost track. Uh, so there, I, it was obvious, like the three instincts were obviously chakra one, two, and three. Yes. Uh, okay, and then from there, uh, heart is heart, but help me out. What's the whole picture? Well, there, it's a little bit uh, different than how the, the two systems aren't exactly the same, but there are correlations, as, and you followed it very well so far. Uh, just then the ordinary mind, uh, in a certain sense, is, would be the throat chakra. It's expression, creativity, things like that. 
But then you've got in the Enneagram world, we have higher emotional center and higher intellectual center, which correspond to, in some sense, third eye and crown. But the functions of these in the chakra system operate a little differently than the way we talk about them in terms of the centers. And we'll be getting into all of that with a, a lot of detail. I would say that when we're working with the centers, it can be interesting to sort of, you know, compare and contrast with the chakras. But I think I, I myself get a little bit confused when I try to conflate them too much because there are some differences in how they are discussed in the systems. And I've talked with some yogis about this. And I've talked with some people who are kind of more in the Western tradition, Sufi masters who talk about these things as almost different layers mm -hmm. of the same phenomena. That the, the chakra system has more to do with the system of our life energy. And so they pertain to our health, our vitality, the actual uh, life force energy of our, our organism. Whereas the centers are a layer or two deeper and have more to do with the mm, fundamental intelligences that are feeding into this living system. So people talk about it different ways. And I just think that when we talk about any of this stuff, it's important that we make clear what we mean by it. And we're gonna to go to a lot of trouble to do that uh, during the whole course. But uh, I hope that at least gives you some sense of, of your question. You know, that's a good question. People often wonder about that. That's fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay, this comes from Kathleen, it says, are there people who do not have a wounding in their childhood? Also, some people have deeper wounds than others. Does this affect their ability to work with the fixation? Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, certainly, you know, people can have different kinds of wounds, different kind of difficulties. Some are more traumatized than others. Some have relatively smooth childhoods, but you know, it, it can be argued that even birth <laughs> the whole kind of wild ride of, of going from being a, a being living in that womb to coming out into the world is itself one heck of an experience. So, you know, there are different theories about that. I don't know if there is anybody who has no childhood difficulties. That's kind of hard to imagine. Because even if, uh, let me put it this way, when we're babies, we don't have any sense of time. We're in the now, but for us, you know, five minutes could seem like five years. So just mom is a little late coming to nurse us or take or change our diapers or something. For the adult world, it's just a few moments. It's nothing. For the baby, that can seem interminable. So relatively small events can have big effects in those early primary imprinting experiences. Now, I think those kind of experiences do not determine our, our core type pattern. We believe that the core type pattern is already there. We're already endowed with it. It's there from birth. Some think it's genetic. Some say it's, it, it, some people think it comes from a past life. I don't know. I just know that my observation working with many, many people over the years and sometimes with very small children, the predilection toward a type energy is already there. And the child uses that predilection, what psychologists call a temperament, to cope with whatever difficulties they face. 
um, Don Riso and I used to talk about a, uh, a theory that he presented called the levels of development. And that's basically looking at what, how intensely we wear our type. Some of us wear our type quite lightly. Some of us are very invested in, in coping certain ways because we don't trust anything else will be okay. That's, what, that's how we survive. That was our modality and we're sticking with it even when it doesn't work. So that's, again, fairly normal thing. And most human beings occur at a whole range depending on life circumstances. Different levels of defensiveness get triggered. But I think it would be very, I, I, maybe there are people who have no childhood difficulties, but it's, it's, it's hard to imagine. Uh, so I would, but I will say, and in concurrence, some people don't have as much to overcome. The only other thing I'd add is that sometimes that can be a problem in and of itself because everything's working well enough so we have no impetus to find out anything else. And I've known people like that where, you know, they had a, a good enough, let's say, upbringing. And so they were coping, just grooving along, never got into therapy, never got into any, any work. Life was kind of going their way. And that's great until life doesn't go our way. And then those kind of folks often when they lose a life partner, lose a job, have a health crisis, God forbid, whatever it might be, they have a crisis because they've never needed to develop certain muscles. Whereas those of us who've had more difficulties or traumas or wounds, we have more of, pardon my language, we've got more of a fire under our butt. We're more driven to try to get some answers and find out what's really going on. And so we, through that, have at least the possibility of developing these muscles of attention and inner work that come to our aid when things do go wrong in our life. So I think there's a certain way all of it balances out in the end. Right. And, you know, just to add to what Russ is saying, there is some element of it that we might call from a religious or spiritual perspective of free will. You know, we all have the decision to make, are we going to grow in response to our suffering? Or are we going to just try to defend and cope with it or even put the effects of it on other people and um and so that you know there there just is that place of like what is it that is calling our attention to be present to these different places of suffering in ourselves we know some people who have had tremendous childhood suffering and they are resilient they have they have used their resilience to create a life that they are really paying attention to what matters to them most and developing that and cultivating that in themselves. And that's part of why we wanted this course to really be about the cultivation process. You know, we wanted to create a learning community that was really committed to a deep cultivation of how it is that we can pay attention to our suffering and to our potentials and our capacities and have them be built. Um, I really agree with Russ about it would be hard to find somebody who had never been touched by suffering in a way that affected them. You know, it's interesting because there is a teacher, Sri Aurobindo from India, who's greatly respected, who said once in a, in a writing, he said, well, there is something called the sunlit path where the, a person is never forgets who they really are and they don't have any suffering. He said, but it is reserved for a very rare few. 
And my own, as I thought about it, I do not know who those rare few are because you think about somebody like the Buddha who ostensibly had the most amazing childhood. He was given everything he needed. He was not separated from his parents. He clearly, the description of him is that he grew up with confidence and presence and all of that. But when he, but that was because he was also kept from the suffering of the world. And when he was exposed to the suffering of the world and the fact that people get sick and they die, he went through a crisis as Russ is describing and he had to deepen his search. It wasn't just enough to have a healthy childhood. Similarly with a beautiful beloved spiritual figure like Paramahansa Yogananda, again, profound childhood seems to have come out of it so intact with his relationship with the divine and a confidence in his own path and he was able to do amazing things in the world. But later in his life, his best friend turned against him and evidently it broke his heart so much that he had to leave the ashram, you know, all the system that he was taking care of for a while and go to Mexico. I think it was like two years before he came back. And it's not clear that he ever really truly recovered from that. So I want to kind of reiterate what Russ is saying and maybe offer this that each of us is a unique manifestation, you know, of life, of reality, of the all that is. And while in a way we can say that it's only through grace that any of us is able to make a decision, shall we say, or say yes to cultivating ourselves, there is a place where it does take some awareness and consciousness to say that yes. And I think from that place of yes, it maybe doesn't matter so much what our history has been. The yes itself becomes the holding, it becomes the, the thing that is going to make it possible for us to become resilient and cultivated or go back to sleep. Great, thank you so much. Um, this is Gabby here. And Gabby, let me bring you on over. And here we go. Great. Bit go dark ahead. again. Bit dark here, but anyway. Um, what I'm, I'm uh, uh, being at the moment is how, how is it possible to bring this feeling of depth and this feeling of um, waking up a bit more and a bit more and a bit more together with then at the next moment turning around and just behaving like shit again. We'll be talking about that in this course because that's really the, the key, isn't it? I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, in the next session, actually, we'll be talking about the differentiation between realization which is that moment where we get it where we're practicing we see how the world is what we are what our dog is what what everything is we these moments of revelation and the actualizing of that which is the living the implications of it and learning what to do when those oh shit moments happen right and they will so the enneagram is really more about that I mean, there's a lot of ways we can 
read books or learn from teachers about realization. There's a lot of people out there telling us different ways to figure out our oneness with reality, and that's true. But I think the harder part of the whole thing is learning to walk the talk of that realization. It's not so easy. And the people can do it are very rare. There are people giving satsangs and telling people all sorts of wonderful things about them. And then we find out that they're doing kind of heinous things to their students. It's, it's not uncommon. So I think what we'll, we'll be exploring in detail in the next session is we're learning to bring those aha moments and the presence they bring to the patterns that get us into these muddles that we get into, right? It's not leaving the one and going to the other, which is, I think, the usual view. It's bringing the largesse of our deeper consciousness and compassion to the suffering that is driving us to do these patterns, to do these things that in a clearer moment we would not really want to do. Those, those behaviors that after we've done them, we go, oh dear, what did, what did I just say? What, and that, again, none of these are, we're not suggesting here quick fixes, but there, there's a way of living where we start to cultivate the capacity to parent these wounded child parts of ourself which are engendering these strange behaviors that we do. And, and that's essentially what we're working at in this course. We're bringing the depth to what's usually in the driver's seat, but it takes a while before we actually get the full on taste and, and the full resonance of what is in the driver's seat most of the time. What has assumed the eye is part of the eye, but it isn't, it isn't the one who's supposed to be driving the car, I'll just say it that way. But it's a, you were asking the perennial question, in, in my view, the question that's driven me my whole life. And this is the question that you're asking is the question that has given birth to this course. I mean, really, with along with what Russ was saying about next time, how we're going to really delve into this further, we'll be talking, too, about the absolute critical essential nature of practice. Yes. You know, our, our bodies and hearts and minds have been co-opted in a way by our temperament and the formation of personality using that temperament to defend against the suffering of our lives. And as we're relaxing out of that into depth, our bodies and hearts and minds are going to need to create new pathways of the way we move, the way we talk, the way we perceive things, what happens in our heart as we're impacted by certain things. So the practice part of the depth experiential approach here is so critical to this transformation. And for me, I think that what Russ was saying about the, you know, we learn to parent, for instance, um, our, our younger selves, our wounded child. What is so powerful for me about the Enneagram is that we're able to do that from a non-blaming, non-shaming perspective. The Enneagram really helps you not label these behaviors as bad. And it's not that it's um, coddling you at all. It's that it's just immediately getting present to the eruption, if you will, or the decimation or the dissembling that happens and understanding that though it's dysfunctional, it's actually got an intelligence of its own that's trying to get back to the more healthy and awakened self. 
And so you're able to kind of utilize that energy in a way that doesn't infantilize you. You, you parent the inner child not from a place that makes you younger in a way or lets the inner child take control, but in a way that is really wise, incredibly wise, and invites you to a largeness of yourself. So we'll be integrating all these things in so that we as a community can have this process of cultivation of new pathways. I hope that helps. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And, and thank you again for, what, for the last panel you did on the Enneagram Summit. I think that was awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jaya. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay. So I think we have one last question, if y'all are okay. One last. Is okay? Yeah. Um, okay, great. Uh, no name uh, with this one, but it says, if one is liberated, is personality relevant? Or do we truly become all nine types? This confuses me. On the other side, is the Enneagram relevant when people have severe mental illness like schizophrenia? Or at that level, do we fall apart to all the most harmful aspects of all types? I've personally seen this in the field of mental health, and it seems it would be dangerous to use the Enneagram with folks in that situation. Yeah, excellent question. Uh, maybe I address the, the latter part first. Um, it really depends. There's such a broad spectrum of things under the category of mental or emotional illness. And some of them, they would kind of be okay you know, to work with the Enneagram. But knowing what it means to work with the Enneagram is, is a big question. What do we mean by that? Telling the person about their type? Uh, may or may not be necessary, but understanding some of the psychodynamics or, or survival patterns that are running in them, that could be useful for the, the clinician or the therapist, uh, very much so. And there are various um, mental illnesses, some, as we know, biologically generated, some environmentally generated, that in some sense trump the function, the, the normal functions of the personality. That being said, we have noticed over the years that you can't make a one-on-one -on -one correspondence between nine types and nine mental disorders. That's, I've never seen anything like that that convinced me. But there are prevalences, there are probabilities, there are some Enneagram type energies are more vulnerable, we could say, to certain things going off. Uh, but that being said, if you're you're trying to uh, support uh, a person with schizophrenia. Um, schizophrenia has to be dealt with in its own way. And here's where it could be useful. A five or a six or a seven or an eight, each with schizophrenia, it will manifest kind of differently depending on their temperament. Because remember, if you keep coming back to remembering type is temperament, you'll get it. Now, to go back to your first part, which was also interesting, I think personality is relevant. I've never met any teacher, and I've been around some great ones, was entirely free of ego. And I'm not even sure that would be desirable. What happens, I think, is that people who have more realizations stop believing that they are the ego. Ego functions may continue. For example, uh, I've used this example many times. I learned how to speak English as a little kid. English language and the, the syntax of English language is not 
part of what I was endowed with at birth, nor is it part of consciousness itself. It's something I learned and acquired. It's ego structuring of my mind and my, the musculature of my tongue and my mouth and so forth and my ears. I don't want to lose the ability to speak English, but there's another way where I assume that that is me in some sense. So the, the boundaries here get interesting. I would say that in my experience, people as they develop uh, in their capacity to work through their personality issues can do so more quickly. Mm -hmm. So maybe an issue comes up and instead of struggling with it for days or weeks or months or years, they can, in a few seconds, work through that issue. They get back to their center. They can metabolize their reactions way more quickly. But it would be very, very unusual if somebody had no reaction. They've seen great, totally revered masters have reactions, but they know what to do with their reactions. They can transmute them more quickly. The other thing is that I think that, yes, we grow in our capacity to dance with all nine of the higher side of the energies. Those gifts are more available as needed, but we remain with one of them as like our primary gift, uh, our primary transmission. Um, I used to use the example of, it used to uh, teachers from India. Uh, Ama is uh, the hugging guru, doesn't do a lot of teaching. She hugs you and looks into your eyes, she gives you a mantra, and she's, I, I believe, Amma is a two on the Enneagram, and so her transmission is about love and contact and having you see and feel certain things about yourself. So even though I'm sure she could dance with a lot of energies, her main transmission is still that. Uh, Krishnamurti, I think, was an Enneagram six, and he's, his whole teaching, he just talked and revealed things to your mind. He certainly wasn't going to hug you. And, he uh, was always trying to show people that the wisdom that you're seeking, the master is within you, the guru is within you. That was always his teaching, which is what the six is trying to find in themselves. So I think that, yes, both are true. We both play with the whole range of the energies more freely. We're not resisting them. And we also remain with a gift. But the last thing to say about that is when we identify with the gift, then the gift is used to prop up an identity and it stops being a gift. When we're not identified with the gift, it's free to be used for what it's actually for. So that's all, that's beautiful, <clears throat> Russ. And just to add that, I think that when we are in a more contracted state and we are identifying with our personality, it's more important to understand what our type is. It's more useful. And at what point that is, at what point, at what level of mental wellness that is, I think that could be on a case by case basis or something that still needs to be studied. I think at some point when people are really locked down into their particular reactivities from their, their type, from their personality, then it's very useful to know what their actual type is rather than to know all the nine types. The thing that you're talking about, about being able to sort of feel all the nine capacities in ourselves, I think that happens or is more useful as we're getting freed up more from our personality reactivities. And then we can start to notice that we have these other capacities and even invite ourselves to stretch 
out of our comfort zones and try on some of these different capacities. The way I like to think of it is that the more that we are awakening to our true nature, the more we're going to need to utilize all the other qualities to stabilize that gift and awakening in an actualized way, in a way that's embodied and able to be given to life. And the other thing I want to add is just a very interesting inquiry to invite maybe all of you to be in with us, which is, for me, I have felt a lot for a long time, like the inclusion of the Enneagram, the wisdom of the Enneagram, the Enneagram teachings, uh, and the way that they intrinsically invite us to get off of particular views or stances or positions, to integrate that more readily into not only our society and our social structures and you know education and health and all of that, but to integrate it into spiritual endeavor and spiritual awakening and spiritual paths itself could be very powerful. I truly wonder sometimes if our ability to free up our gifts, the way that Russ was talking about, could be even more liberated if we, if people who were doing the path had that particular knowledge about temperament and type and personality and essence and reactivity. So this is one of the reasons I've been so excited that the Enneagram Global Summits, for instance, have been spreading so far and wide and why Russ and I are very interested in this particular course in bringing the Enneagram into the what normally we might just talk about as the awakening of consciousness, but we're really embedding and utilizing the wisdom of the Enneagram in itself. Yeah, the other thing I'd say is that this isn't a graduation program. You know, realization is not a graduation. This is a very common view that people graduate from ego. That's a very young view. Nobody graduates from anything. And if we look at our experience, it's sort of like, you know, in school, you know, I learned math and went to a pretty high level of math in my education. But some mornings I wake up and I have to stop and sort of remember how division works. You know, it's the same with this. We might have tremendous realizations and we may have worked on for years. But some mornings you wake up and you're right back at square one. The person who's done the real work, though, recognizes they don't fantasize, oh, I'm enlightened. That's how people get stuck. Better to throw that whole idea out. The person who's done the inner work wakes up that morning, recognizes that they're in some kind of stuck, familiar pattern, and slowly does the work, is with their feelings, inquires into it, and finds their way back on track again. We cannot assume that we have these things. Mm -hmm. Who would it be that has them? Right, it gets very tricky, but uh, anyway, that's. I'm glad you brought this question because a lot of people ask about that, and it is very germane to the things that will be. And concomitant with what Russ was just saying, you know, there's a teaching that what a master, a real master, sees every morning when they look in the mirror is a beginner, and I think this is precisely the point of our class: is that we're not trying to get anywhere; we're trying to cultivate an orientation, cultivate an approach. And education often fails because it's 
it's a result-oriented kind of education. Real education, and it's been written about, is teaching someone how to think. It's, it's exactly what Russ was just describing. It's teaching someone how to build something, but not, it's not just the feeding of pieces, fact and knowledge and all of that. And our hope is that this class is going to cultivate the place in us where we have the capacity to keep coming back to each moment from a place of presence and depth, which is an infinite dynamism. And we'll find something new each moment, not something that we would have predicted and not something that is a goal of our more contracted state. So I hope that helps. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks again, uh, Russ and Jessica. Great to be here with you today. Thank you. And yeah, absolutely. And thanks to everyone participating today. Um, and we'll be in the same, uh, same time, same place next week. But I have just a brief uh, announcement to make. Um, on your course homepage, you will find details about how to connect to your course community group on Facebook. And this group provides an opportunity for you to connect with fellow classmates and to support one another on this journey throughout the course. So the open enrollment period for this group is about two weeks time. So we do ask that you take the time to sign up now. Uh, Facebook join requests can take up to 24 hours to process. So um, if you would like to do so, you can go to your course homepage in the upper left-hand corner and find the course community group button. And of course, you can also find this information in one of the emails either sent today or post-class uh, tomorrow. So after this um, join time period, uh, the, the Facebook joins uh, will take a little bit longer to process as the group will go to secret status. And this is for the benefit of your privacy. So just note that after the two weeks, it'll go to secret and it may take a little bit longer to join. Um, please, again, look in tomorrow's email for more information. And also, if your Facebook name happens to be different than the name you've registered with for the course, then please contact customer support and let them know so we can easily identify you and accept you into the group. So again, thank you so much, Jessica and Russ. Many thank blessings. Take care. See you all next week. Thanks for beginning with us, everyone. We look forward to the journey. Yes, and thanks, Lauren. Yeah, thank you.